No. I'm not worried at all. I rely on God, Allah. Addressing real issues with real solutions with real Muslim communities living in the West. Join the LifeHug Podcast family as we go beyond the theoretical. To connect with us, go to youtube.com slash Dr. Sayed and support us by subscribing and hitting the notification bell. For more reminders, follow us on Twitter at life underscore Huck. I'm really enjoying, by the way, the conversation. It's very good. Alhamdulillah. So, uh, w- you reminded me actually when you talked about like we're risk averse. I 100% agree with you. I 100% agree with you. You know, when I was in the Muslim uh, Students Association, uh, I think it got worse over time. I felt when I first, you know, got into the game, like, uh, you know, late 90s, early 2000, there were people more willing uh, to take risks, especially feasibility, uh, you know, to, you know, for the dawah, you know, putting themselves and it just became like people became just softer and softer uh, over time, not willing to take that risk. And uh, with no risk, of course, you get less reward, less gains for the ummah. And, you know, as you mentioned, the life of Rasul Sallallahu well, let's even go to the best Sahaba. I would say if we talk about the life of Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu anhu, there was, you know, in, in terms of uh, the commitment and willing to risk it all for that commitment, there's no other Sahabi who is willing to do that. And that's why Ali bin Abi Talib, radiallahu anhu, uh, he said, you know, both of them made that statement. The moment of Pharaoh and Abu Bakr made that statement, Atakturuna rajulun ayakura rabbi Allah. Then are you killing a man because he said his Lord is Allah, right? Mm. Except the difference, he said, uh, one moment in the life of Abu Bakr as-Siddiq, radiallahu anhu, is worth... More than a thousand uh, of uh, the mu'min of Pharaoh, because the difference between the two is the mu'min of Pharaoh kept his deen secret and hidden and away. He didn't take any, you know, exposure, that risk. Whereas Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu anhu, he took, he, as soon as the da'wah is given, uh, he said about him, he was the first, he accepted Islam. He was the first to be there to defend Rasul Sallallahu uh, He was the first to risk it all, his all his wealth, to donate it for the sake of Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. And that's why we see uh, he's the first of the Khulafa Rashidu. He'll be the first after the NBA and Jannah. You know, so without that, him taking those risks based on those principles right away, he would not have that status as he would. So uh, I 100% agree with you that we need the courage to be able to take those risks. And when you're so attached to the dunya, I think it goes also hand in hand with that hadith uh, of Rasul when he describes wahin, how the people will just be able to take advantage of you. Because why? It's hubba dunya. You're holding on. You don't want to risk losing anything from this dunya, right? Uh, yes. And, you know, there's, uh, you know, this... Um, uh, this, this this sense of like having the numbers but being so ineffective. Um, so I 100% uh, you know agree with the fact that we need to develop that courage, especially amongst leaders. If they know the truth, they need to step up and speak the truth. And we need people to support them because even the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam was supported by a generation of Sahaba around him. You know, like if we look at the unique uh, characteristic that you know separates uh, Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam and all the other anbiya none of the other anbiya had 
that core group of companions to support them as Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam had, and uh, we should appreciate that that. Uh, this dawah needs to be carried like, you know, if we have good leaders, that needs to be supported with um, people who are willing to risk, uh, you know, their their personal uh, comfort, well-being uh, for their leader as an extension of ati Allah wa ati rasul right? Like as an, as an extension uh, of that, of being Allah and his messenger, sallallahu So, uh, leaders, uh, I feel one thing that we need to do and start to do, and I want to get your insight maybe perhaps on how we can do this, is that if you go amongst the common people, they're more willing to focus on the differences, the past indiscretions, rather than the future building of a relationship. The awam, the general, they usually do this. How can we do this? Because there's, there's, there is, you know, Amongst uh, and you dis- uh, discuss this, I believe as well in, in in your in some of your videos that you have on Facebook. Like you have this um, this tension between Arabs and the Black community, and the Black community, the Asians, and you know what I mean. Everyone has like these tensions amongst the, each other. Sometimes a little bit of distrust. Maybe there's past indiscretions. And how can now a group of people rise above that from all of these different communities? Because, for example. I 100% agree. The voice, the power that we can get from the African American community is bar none because of the trial that you've been put through, subhanAllah. The voice perhaps that we can get from uh, the Asian community, you know, for, uh, you know, maybe different than uh, the Arab community and, and so forth. So rather than looking at, okay, this is the reason why we're, we're in such a bad situation. Okay, what are the talents? How can I be a talent scout? And bring all the talents together to build a championship okay. team. Okay. How can good. we be that talent scout? Jay? Very good. I'm glad. This is a very poignant uh, question. Uh, you know, there's an element in Islam uh, which has been eviscerated. Uh, it's, been, it's been politically, surgically eviscerated from the Muslim consciousness uh, and thinking. Uh, in order to make them uh, 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 impotent, ineffective, divided among themselves, and locked into culture. Um, this is called jama'ah. Okay, so what the Prophet did with the Aws and the Khazraj, and what he did with the Ansar and the Muhajireen, okay, is the first thing that he did. Uh, if, if we study the seerah, and this is another reason why we have problems among the Muslims, because Maybe they, they have memorized the Quran outside of the context of the seerah, okay? Mm-hmm. Or they have studied, uh, uh, they have studied the, uh, uh, the hadith outside of the context of, of the akhlaq, okay? So, you know, you got people that are walking Qurans, meaning in the sense of just memorization, or you got people who have memorized a lot of hadith outside of the akhlaq, okay? So what are they basically doing? They're just kind of like regurgitating the Quran itself, or they're just giving you uh, principles from the hadith which sound good inside of a room or inside of a masjid but it's without the substance okay so when you connect the asbab al-nuzul when you connect the reasons and the circumstances for which the quran was revealed as it was revealed and you connect that to the hadith then you start to see oh it was this circumstance and it was this reason and this was the setting when this hadith was mentioned like, 
The person who related that to us is Uthman ibn Affan. So who was the person that actually um, um, characterizes that hadith? The one that related it to us is the one that heard it directly from the Prophet because it was the manner of the Prophet sometimes to say something in the face of the person that characterized that particular issue. Okay, so then, so when you start looking at these, how the seerah connected the Quran and connected the hadith, the life of the Prophet now you start seeing the picture. So um, what has happened when the Prophet went, made his hijrah, uh, because in, in Mecca, he did not have a real community. He lived in Darul Arkham for, you know, for a certain period of time. Okay, so he lived in isolation, but he could not build a social component, okay, because of the oppression. But when he went, when he made the, the treaty of, uh, of the Aqaba Ula and Aqaba Thani, when he made that treaty and then he went, one of the conditions was that they would protect him. He didn't have that protection in Mecca, right? Mm. Secondly, when he went to Medina or to Yathrib, he found a cosmopolitan place, okay, different. There were Jews, there were Christians from Natran, there were the Jews, the Christians, there were the desert Arabs, there were the Aus and the Khazraj who was about to have a civil war. There was others from the surrounding areas. There was a lack of a, 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 a totally diverse, uh, uh, which call it uh, ethnic footprint in Medina, a, a diverse ideological footprint in Medina, a different makeup of people. So when Allah brought the Prophet Sam, he brought him there as an arbiter. Mm. He, he, didn't, he, he didn't send him to the Prophet, send him there as a prophet, except to that 12 people who came the first time and that mm. 70 people who came the second time. Those were the people who he came as a prophet and a messenger. The rest of Medina, the Christians, the Jews, the desert Arabs, and all the surrounding tribes, he didn't come as a prophet. He came as a personality that was known to be trustworthy and he could possibly... Um, um, he could dispel or, or arbitrate this pending civil war and give to that place some kind of social uh, stability. So think about that point. Next thing, what did the Prophet do when he got to Medina, uh, to Yathrib? The first thing he did was he united the people around himself, the people that had an oath to him. He said to them, do not call this city anymore Yathrib. You must call it now Medina to Nebi. The, the city of the Prophet, Salaam. Why, why he did that? He wanted to give the city in their minds a new identity. He didn't force that upon the others. They could call it what they wanted, but he did among his followers. He wanted to give them a new cosmopolitan, uh, 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 if you want to call it urban identity. So that was number one. The second thing, he understood that there were dynamics in, in, in Yathrib that were quite different and explosive that he, if he didn't resolve it quickly, there's going to be some problems from the Muhajirin and the Ansar. And so he made them, what did he do? He made them brothers. He took Ansar and he took Muhajirin and he put them together and he said, you must act as brothers. And so what did the Ansar do because of their nature? They took the Muhajirin into their homes. They made them family members. And so because of that, the seed of Jama'ah began to build. And that Jama'ah was not built upon ethnicity. That Jama'ah was sure, surely the, the Arab culture in general was still there. But that Arab culture was so diversified that, you know, that was still, maybe it was like a, a what do you call it, a boiling pot. But mm. the Prophet and his wisdom 
He arbitrated issues between the Ansar and the Muhajireen. He arbitrated between them and he made them brothers. And gradually he created a social fiber where they started to see themselves as one. And because they started to see themselves as one and to address issues as one, then even the non-Muslims of, 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 of Yathrib, they were able to defend him. They were able to defend their city. They were able you know, to benefit. And the Prophet was able to grow in that seed, in that soil of Yathrib, like he could not inside Mecca. So it's brotherhood. Number mm -hmm. two, community. Brotherhood mm -hmm. breeds community. And mm -hmm. community is not just where you are. You know, Muslims keep using this terminology, I'm from such and such a masjid. Mm -hmm. People ask me, Shep, what masjid do you belong to? I always mm -hmm. say to them, brother, what are you? What's wrong with you? Yeah. In the masjid of the left, the masjid yeah. belong to Allah. We don't belong to the masjids. That's mm -hmm. number one. Number two, uh, because you built a masjid from the ground up, you say that this is our community. You don't have a community. You have a congregation. You have a congregation inside of a building. That is not a community inside of a geographical area. Uh, a community is made up of people that live together, that have a, a similar urf, you know, uh, mm. uh, what's called social consciousness, mm. uh, uh, maybe a similar language and experience, and they pay taxes, and they, 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 they use, they benefit from, from similar central institutions. They make similar sacrifices, and they come to know each other. Uh, through a period of time. This is a community, and there are leaders in that community that are recognized. And those leaders are also accountable not, and responsible. So this is a community. What has happened in the Muslim world is that the, the idea of community doesn't exist anymore. It's gone. Mm -hmm. So I visited, I have visited 32 of the major Muslim countries out of the, out of the 87, well, actually out of the 97 countries that I have visited, 32 of them are major Muslim countries. And essentially, for the most part, they don't have what's called brotherhood and community because the word brotherhood now has been criminalized in much of the Muslim world. If you use this terminology more than once in your talk, in a, in a, given a khutbah, you probably will be put in jail afterwards. Okay? Yeah. Secondly... It'll be like, come here, brother. Come with us into jail. <laughs> yeah. So, so the word brotherhood has been criminalized in yeah. most of the Muslim world, if you're yeah. using it from a political, open uh, 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 point of view. Okay, next. The word community, jama'ah, now is looked to be sort of like a clique. If you use the word jama'ah, they're going to associate it with, oh, jama'at al-Muslimin, or jama'at al-Fukra, or jama'at al-this, or jama'at that, which is sort of like a clique or a clan or some kind of schism or some kind of, uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, uh, or some kind of a group that's been banned or something. The word Jama'ah has now been given a distorted view. So Muslims don't want to hear about brotherhood. They don't want to hear about Jama'ah. Whereas Umar al-Khattab, he said, and I'll just paraphrase it for the audience. Umar said, there's no Islam without Jama'ah. SubhanAllah. He didn't mean, there's no, he didn't mean that there's no Arkan al-Islam, Arkan al-Iman. That's not what he meant. He meant that there is no social public manifestation of Islam without the jama'ah, without a community. Because the community is able to give sensory uh, perception and evidence of Islam to another community. And without that community existing, the people can see nothing except themselves 
and some distorted images of Islam. And that's mm -hmm. our problem. So what I'm trying to do as an individual, to the best of my ability, I want to bring back brotherhood. I want to bring back community. I want to bring it back outside of the clique, the cultural cliques and groups that came together around personalities. I want to bring it together outside of that. You know, for instance, um, and, and I don't mind to say this, you know, uh, part of my early experience with, uh, with uh, community, uh, it came because I read um, pretty deeply um, the books of uh, uh, Hassan al-Banna, uh, the books, you know, send me of, uh, of, um, uh, of uh, uh, Abu al-Ala Maududi, okay? Uh, for me, I grew up, I lived, I ate from Hassan al-Banna, okay? I lived and ate from, uh, uh, from Abu al-Ala Maududi, okay? Mm. And today, my inside is still living from them because they gave me through their writings not so much through their groups. They mm. gave me through their writings the sense of brotherhood, dignity, social activism, okay, and community. And mm. so, unfortunately, both of their lives have been distorted and almost criminalized. Why? Because mm. the people who have the money and the influence and have their own agendas, they don't want those kinds of personalities to be building stuff from the ground because it will cause uh, disturbance and aggravation to their uh, 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 to their political platforms and, and governmental setup, so to speak. Okay, so I say that what we need to do today is, without using the names of Abu Ala Maududi, you know, or, or say Qutb, you know, and so people want to call us, you know, Qutbis, or they want to call us Maududis, or they want to give us some other kinds of names. So what we have to do is we have to use the fertilizer from what they have given to us and their teachers and their sources and put that into the soil of the 21st century. And then we have to develop another garden. We have to develop another consciousness, which is built on brotherhood, community, and social responsibility. Those are the three things, brotherhood, community, and social responsibility. Now, brotherhood is between ourselves how we treat each other, how we see each other, our loyalty towards each other, our love for each other, our respect for each other. You know, the, the fact that when I go to places in the Muslim world, I sit at the table in a family's house. The wife, the daughter, the aunt, the grandmother, everybody is at the table. The maids, the servants, they're all eating at the same table. And nobody's afraid to be exposed. You know, the women are not running away someplace and hiding, you know, because in their culture, you don't have to. They all feel safe. It's a family environment. And we're eating together. It doesn't mean that I have direct access to somebody's wife or direct access to somebody's daughter or grandmother. No, it doesn't mean that. It just means that they have trusted me to come inside their home, to break bread in the face of their entire family. This is what was done in the time of the Prophet ﷺ. This was done in the time of the companions of the Prophet ﷺ. Even though there was still a, a, a veil uh, there was a distinction and a veil, and uh, what you want to call it a hijab, between the men and the women uh, to keep their moral dignity and distinction and all of that. Still, the, the, the brotherhood, the things that breed community was done. It was acted upon. So we don't have that today. We have been indoctrinated that women should be on the other side. Men should be on that side. You know, you're, you know when I should not ask about your family. 
I remember one day I was with a scholar. I'll be honest with you. I was with a scholar one day that I lived in his house. He's one of my teachers. And I respect him today highly because of what he gave to me. And one day I was leaving to come back to America. And I said to him, uh, uh, Sheikh, uh, please uh, give my salam to your wife and thank her for whatever it is. He said, what? He asked me, what did you say? I said, Sheikh, please give my salam to my sister, your wife. He mm. told me, Sheikh, look, let me tell you this. He told me, in our, in our country, a man doesn't say that to another man about his wife. He said, I know, I understand what you're saying because, mm. you know, our relationship. But let me tell you, don't do that again to another person like me because mm. you're going to find out the doors will be closed and you'll never be invited. And you, it's an insult. I couldn't mm. believe that. Mm. I mean, what, it's kind of yeah. I understand it now from the conditioning, but yeah. the point I'm trying to say is that we lost brotherhood. We mm. don't ask about each other's families, not mm. sincerely. We don't mm. visit each other, not sincerely. We mm. don't interact together. We don't even buy from each other. Mm. You know, I go to masjids and in the khutbah, I give an example. I say, uh, brothers, uh, how many of you can tell me Five, the names of five of your neighbors by first name. Mm. There could be a congregation of 300, 400, 500 people. And you wouldn't know what? There's not even five or 10 people that can give me the names of their neighbors. SubhanAllah. Mm. Secondly, I ask brothers. Okay, brothers, we're all brothers. How many of you can tell, look at the brother to your right, look at the brother to your left, look at the brother in front of you or the sister in back of you and tell me what's the name of their children? They can't mm. do it. Mm. Okay, secondly, what's their wife's name? Have you been to their house? Did you eat dinner with them? So how do you know each other? You come mm. to the mosque and see each other? So brotherhood has been killed. That's number one. Let's move on to community. Community in Islam, when Umar al-Khattab said uh, there's no Islam without jama'ah, what he meant is that he said there's no Islam without jama'ah and no jama'ah without an amir. He didn't say without an imam. When we look to a congregation, we're looking to the imam. But in reality, in the Muslim world today, and in North America in, in particular, the imams are nobody. In terms of the hierarchy, the food chain, you know and I know that usually the imam is just a hired guy who's brought in because he knows the Quran, he knows the Arabic language, he has some history and delivery, blah, blah, blah. But when it comes to what's going on in policy and being an executive, he's a nobody. Mm. It's set up that way. Why? Because they don't want an imam that might get influence with the people and affect the policies of those who have executive status. That's just the way it goes. Now, I didn't say it's a conspiracy. No, it has become a part of the culture of the mosque. Yes. Okay. So, therefore, we don't have a community. Because that imam, he cannot, as a personality, build that community and that link between the blacks and the Hispanics and between the Arabs and the Asians and the Africans. He can't do that. Why? Because maybe an African brother then is going to ask for a Bangladeshi uh, uh, family for their daughter. And you know what that means. That is a no-no. Excuse me for using that terminology, but I have to be kind of, kind of, kind of like keep it real. Okay, so nobody wants some guy from Nigeria to be asking for their Syrian daughter. 
Mm. So to avoid that, they keep all those barriers locked down, and the masjids are usually, you know, behind the scenes. It might be called Masjid Omar al-Khattab. It might be called Masjid Abu Huraira. They might be called Masjid Furqan. But in reality, it's the Bengali mosque. It's the Turkish mosque. You know, it's the Saudi mosque, or it is the uh, Yemeni mosque, or it's the Somali mosque. But you know, and I know, and all the other Muslims know, that there's a group, an ethnic group, that controls that mosque and the policies of that mosque forever. And they're never going to allow any other ethnic group to come in, to mix in, and to join them in their executive influence. And that has become a, an unspoken rule. I want to gradually break that rule down. Mm. By doing what? Insisting upon brotherhood. Number yes. two, insisting from the younger generation upon developing the platform of community where we have an Amir. The Prophet he said, uh, and I'll paraphrase it. He said, if any, one of, any three of you is on a journey, select one person to be the Amir. So if it's just a journey, it's mm. only a journey from one place to another, 50 miles or 100 kilometers or whatever we're going. What about if you're on a journey of life? No Amir? Just an imam to lead the prayer? Mm. No, if you don't have an amir, it's just like we say, those who do not have a plan, those who do not, uh, uh, those who fail to plan, plan to fail. Mm. Okay, similarly, those who live in a community where there is not amr, very clear amr, that mm. somebody has the final decision, not the board of trustees, not the president, you know, because these are, these, are, these are intellectual guys, these are doctors, these are whatever you want to call it, and yeah, they invested the money, and yeah, they're smart, but they're not activists, they're not on the ground, and in many cases, they don't have even a connection to the, to, the, to the common people. No, there has to be an Amir who has the final decision in all matters of arbitration and judgment and dealing with the people. So this is community. The next thing is called social responsibility. When you have brotherhood and you have a community, now you can interact with the greater community, even if they're non-Muslims, as mm -hmm. the Prophet did in Medina, because you take social responsibility. You are now mm -hmm. taking the responsibility of your neighbors. You're dealing your assembly with not the neighbors, but they're also the social infrastructure. You are attending gatherings. The city, you're going to the city hall meetings. You know, you are engaged in social political uh, issues, even if you don't vote. Okay? You are discussing issues of social responsibility. You are meeting with other people and taking responsibility for your actions. And you are dealing with the demographics and all this is. This is brotherhood, community, and social responsibility, which is not tolerated in the Muslim world today, except in certain small circles. You know, if you go to Indonesia, if you go to Malaysia, if you go to West or East or West Africa, you know what I'm saying? If you go to certain parts of the Arabian Peninsula, you know, you may find that, you know, the small little groups in a village who might do that. But on the whole, brotherhood, community, and social responsibility has been eviscerated, just mm -hmm. like the bone has been taken out of a out of boneless chicken. You know, and that, if anybody knows how the bone is taken out of a chicken so that you get boneless breast. You know, you get boneless chicken fillet. How's that done? It's done surgically. And it is done surgically in the Muslim world. So uh, I have become an advocate for the Muslims mm. when I'm talking to non-Muslims, right? Mm. But when I'm talking to Muslims in inside the house, I'm not advocating their 
particular predicaments. I'm advocating for what? Brotherhood, community, social responsibility. And in my book, Islam, America, and the World, some of the Muslims are going to ask the question, hey, Sheikh, why you didn't talk about, I mean, you're from, you're an African-American. Why didn't you talk about the African-American experience in your book? I mean, you have a chance to reach all the people and let people know our situation because the book is not about you. That's my answer. Mm. The book is not about you. Maybe mm. in the second volume, I will do that. Maybe mm. in the third volume, I'm going to do that. But this first volume, this is not about you. It's about us as an ummah. When we mm. talk about Islam, it's about us. And I don't have, it's 150 pages. I mean, it's, it's 200 pages, the book, the first volume, 220 pages maybe. So I don't have 100 pages to talk about us, you know, the African-American mm. experience, because I happen to be an African-American Muslim. That's what I'm mm. going to tell them. Mm. So part of the book, I'm talking about Islam, clarifying it, removing the mis misconceptions and distortions. I'm talking about the pathology of Islamophobia. I'm talking about the, um, the whole concept of terrorism and how terrorism as a concept, as an idea, as a movement, really is, is a, was born among the, the Europeans. The Europeans are the people who in the last 500 years have committed more terrorism in the world than any other group of people in the world today. Yet, in the last 50 years, they transferred the crime of terrorism to Muslims because it was convenient for them to do that after, mm. uh, the, um, after the Soviet Union fell. They needed a new scapegoat. So they did it easily, and Muslims were not smart enough to understand they were going to be the scapegoats. So now, what I'm trying to do now is, and I'm talking about Islam, and then I got to talk about America. I'm an American. Mm. So I can't talk about America as being the, 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 the what do you call it, the, the big shayateen. You know what I mean? Like people call, want to call America the big mm. shaitan. Yeah, there is a big shaitan in America. Mm. Excuse me, Dr. Ford, maybe I'm taking up too much time. You have to stop me, you know? Mm. Um, uh, yeah, America is a big shaitan uh, uh, in terms of its subculture. But if you want to look at the Constitution of the United States and the structure, you know, something of the American society, its mm. government, its institutions, um, its influence in the world today, it is not a big shaitan. It is a huge consortium of products and services that has never been seen or exhibited in the world before. Mm. And I am proud to be a part of that because it gives me as an African-American an empowerment that I never imagined that I would ever have or that any other African-Americans could ever have. And this is from, uh, this is from Allah. You know, subhanAllah, subhanal, when Allah takes something from some people, mm. he gives them something else. But sometimes it takes time for you to realize what he's given to you. So having said that, I'm answering your question in this way. How do we approach that phenomena or that situation that we're in, we have to revisit to the best of our ability, according to the stations that we have, we have to revisit these three components uh, and implant this in the minds of Muslims. Brotherhood, community, and social responsibility. If we do that, doctor, in my belief, in my humble belief, if we are able to do that, we are going to add a new component back to the Muslims that we had before, that's going to bring a new respect and a new refinement to Islam that the world can see a new template. And guess what? If that happens, it's not going to happen in the East. It's going to happen in the West.
And therefore, it is my belief, and I'm telling Muslims what, what I can see, mm. I believe that the Islam that we are looking for is not the historical Islam in the sense of the Quran and in the sense of the, the Sunnah, yes. But in the sense of it coming from a, 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 a historical civilization, no. America, North America, and Europe is where the new Islam is going to come from. And when these three components are refined inside of America and inside of Europe, the new renaissance for Islam is going to come to the world. This is my, uh, this is my conclusion inside of my book. And some people might say, well, Sheikh, you know, you're a bit biased. Oh, Sheikh, you know what I'm saying? You yeah. know, like that's kind of like whatever. But yeah. guess what? If I want to summarize it to the people, that's yeah. what I want to tell them. And guess what? When I talk to the various immigrant communities in America who came from the 54 Muslim countries, you know, there are about 54 or so Muslim countries identified in the United Nations. So when those immigrants come from those countries and come to America, guess what? 95% of them are never going to go back home except mm. for a visit. 95% mm. of their children are going to go maybe to their, their mother country and visit, but they're going to hasten to get back to America or to back to Europe or back to mm. Canada. Why? Mm. Uh, because the products, the services, the quality of life, the mm. civil liberties, the constitutional privileges, and all of that are just too many for somebody to just ignore and go back uh, to the um, dysfunction, the constitutional dysfunction, the social dysfunction, the cultural dysfunction of the Muslim world as we see it. And I don't mean here to say that the, the traditional culture of Muslims are dysfunctional. I don't mean to say that. Mm. Because when it comes to family, Muslims respect family more than any other group of people that I've ever seen. Mm. When it comes to when it comes to allegiance um, and and treating the, the guests, Muslims, subhanAllah, I have visited Muslim countries where let me just say like China. I have visited Muslim families in China and I have been treated the same as if I had visited a Muslim family in Egypt. The mm. same as I have visited a Muslim family in Mecca. The mm. same as I have visited a Muslim family in because it's Muhammad sallallahu it's his dynamic. It's the dynamic. It's the sunnah of the Prophet's behavior, his akhlaq that you see happening in China. So, subhanAllah, in my belief, in my humble uh, awareness and exposure, uh, I believe that uh, if we have workshops, discussions, mm. not upon the academic issues of the Quran and the sunnah, but let's take out the extraction of brotherhood and put that into the mix. We're gonna find a change in disposition in that local community. When mm. people are courageous enough to actually implement brotherhood between themselves, there's gonna be a change. Then when the congregations are courageous enough to say to the board of trustees, listen, we understand you guys have a executive responsibility over the mosque or the institution, and we're going to respect that. But you're not going to preclude us from, uh, from organizing ourselves into an Islamic community as the definition comes in the Quran and the Sunnah. Of course, they have to be courageous enough to do that because maybe the imam of the community is not going to be a spokesman for that because he's getting paid to mm. represent the executives. Okay, mm. that's another challenge. The third thing is 
that we have to be brave enough that some of us have got to put down our ethnic, um, what do you call it? Uh, baggage. Baggage. And so when this George Floyd thing happened, you see, the Muslim world never saw this before. They, they, it, it, it just cold cocked them. That's what we call it in uh, English. You know, when you're blindsided, it's called being cold cocked. That means you were hit from the blind side. You never saw it coming. And if people saw that the George Floyd situation was a crossover from the COVID situation straight into that, the COVID situation had not even subsided. You know, and people's fear and trauma of the COVID came, boom, and they were forced into another trauma immediately. And it, it, it happened so seamlessly that people didn't even realize it, that we crossed over from one disease, you know, which was the pandemic, into another disease, which was what? Global and systemic racism. And we crossed over into it just like that. And people were blindsided because they didn't know how to act. So in my country here in America, um, the immigrant community just didn't know what to do because many of them were sitting on the fence. And many of them also was inside the communities where they were actively acting as racists. And in fact, the George Floyd thing happened was triggered by, a, by an immigrant who overreacted. George Floyd went into his store and gave him a check that when he saw it, the check bounced. It was not a good check. That guy uh, accused him, threatened him, and they called the police. George Floyd left his store. The guy was selling alcohol, girly magazines. He was selling, um, uh, what do you call it, the lottery, and all the haram stuff inside that store. Yet he, when George Floyd, a black guy, came in and gave him a $25 check he overreacted. He called the police. When the police came, the whole thing came out. And then this whole thing that happened all over the world, what triggered it? Overreaction with racial overtones. Now that's one. Second thing, after it all happened, the, the immigrant community didn't know what to do. They were pulverized. They didn't know. Are these guys going to turn on us too? Are they going to be at the footsteps of the mosque? What do we do? Do we get involved? Do we march? Do we say something? Do we get involved? And until right now, most of them still. ICNA, ISNA. I don't know the organizations that are sisters to ICNA and ISNA and, and uh, Canada, but I can just tell you they were ISNA, ICNA, and MASS. They were pulverized. They, could, they, they, was, they, were, they didn't know what to do. And still, for the most part, they don't know what to do. Why? Because it's a social issue. That that blindsided them. Whereas if they were already activists in the community and had built up their responsibility and their had built up their engagement inside the community, they would have come out into the general community and met with other people in the community and developed a strategy on how to deal with that situation, mm -hmm. but they couldn't. So I'll, I'll yeah. stop right there for a moment. Yeah, no, Sheikh, um, what we saw, what I have noticed... Um, here in Canada and by proxy also in the United States is that, uh, yeah, you have, as you mentioned, the immigrant community really doesn't get involved in a lot of different social justice issues. And I think that's a byproduct. Like when you speak to them, it's like they have already adopted, like the just stick to your own lane. Don't stick your head out of the sand, right. Right. you know, mentality. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, I remember there was a, 
a, a person who was a head of a department, Sheikh, if you can imagine a person who's a head of a department in the Department of Medicine, and he was still, and this was him actually leaving Libya for decades, he was still afraid of Qaddafi. Okay, can you imagine like the imagine, fear that's yes, important. The, the yeah. you know the, this is the type of mentality. So a person who's like that, of course, they don't really stand up for uh, these types of social justice issues and whatnot. But two things that you mentioned that I believe could be a path forward. So back, back make one more point. So these organizations, what I have seen them do, is that they've just really towed the um, what's been trending. You know what's like been what would be considered the proper liberal response. You know what I mean? So they haven't come up, they haven't really brought anything unique to the table or really tried to give like the Islamic perspective on, on, on this issue. It's just been like, okay, how can we just tow what's being popularized within um, woke people today? You know what I mean? So this is like these are the hashtags we should be liking. This is what we should follow. Oh, let's do end racism. But what does that really mean in terms of being pragmatically implemented? Um, and I've seen actually, uh, and I can tell it's not from an Islamic perspective because some of these people, when you bring up like an Islamic centric uh, view of something, that's actually looked upon as something negative. Oh. You can't look at it from an Islamic centric point of view. You know what I mean? You have to like, you know, that means you've identified yourself as a Muslim, whereas you need to identify yourself as like a regular citizen. But that, you know, you can't separate that because we're going to look at justice issues through an Islamic lens. Right. So I have seen people, for example, if you can imagine this, like uh, somebody who's a head of a masjid, who's a president of a masjid, say uh, Canada has no racism. It's like, no, you may have not experienced racism, okay, you as a person, but you have not taken the time to speak to people who have encountered racism and injustice and have been oppressed or have lost paychecks or whatever, right? So you've never spoken. So, you you know, to make that type of sweeping uh, statement is very arrogant. It's very out of touch. It's very insensitive, right? So it goes back to, I think, the point that you made, brotherhood. You know, real brotherhood, real care of brotherhood. And when we look at it, it's not just a abstract concept. The messenger of Allah وسلم, gave us practical, pragmatic signs of what that means, what, 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 what brotherhood means, what bringing love to each other means. Right. Like if we look at it, we say brotherhood, we say unity, but it's like you don't want to put any of the work. You want to win a championship, you didn't do any of the drills, you didn't do any of the the hard work, any of the practices, you didn't do any of that stuff. So, for example, brotherhood, we talk about we're in a pandemic. One of the rights that a Muslim has on one another is that we visit somebody who's sick. We visit somebody who's sick. One of the rights that we had is to respond to the salam, is to give each other the salam. Rasul said, if you uh, want to increase the love, of one another to hadu to habu give gifts and one, love one another give gifts and one love one another does you need an occasion to do that no you know does it need to be Eid to do that no does it need to be an anniversary no just give gifts and like invest in that relationship in in the, in the khuwa spread the salam you make dua for your brother in his absence uh the angels are making du- the same dua for you right practical steps uh, funeral. Now we're living in an individualistic lifestyle. You, you know, Sheikh, we're talking about this culture that we live in. It's so individualistic. 
like family members don't see each other uh, for months and maybe years let alone like you know your your brothers any man like you know your blood relatives sometimes people don't see them they don't look up on hey how are you doing are you suffering do you need anything you know you talked about knowing what's going on in a person's household you can't do that by just exchanging text Sheikh. but this is mm. the environment that we live in is that oh i know how you're doing i just text you you said you're good there is no script beyond how you're doing it fine that's the script you know what i mean there's no script outside of that but when we look at, uh, you know, the, what you described of how what a real brotherhood should be, it's like Salman al-Farsi and Abu Darda. Mm. Salman al-Farsi is in the house of Abu Darda. He's talking to his wife to see his condition. He doesn't care about me. He doesn't care about fat. He just cares about salah and like praying in the night and fasting all the time. How is he going to advise his brother if he doesn't know his condition? Mm. And the trust of that brotherhood, you try to advise somebody and tell them, I see this something is wrong. You know, I, I feel they'll get offended. There's no trust, Sheikh. How can you have brotherhood without trust? How come our Rasul said a brother is a, a mirror to another? Mm-hmm. Where, what does that mean? When you look at a mirror, you're looking for something wrong to adjust, to fix up, to, to, to change on yourself. Right, Sheikh? Yeah. So that whole concept, like you said, you know, we say brother, but it's deep. People don't realize what true brothers in Islam are. That when you have these stories that, you know, in, in the Ghazwa afterwards, they, they're, they're, they're starving for water. And they say, no, give it to my brother mm-hmm. before myself. And when they get back to the first one, the first one's passed away. He's dying. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So when you're saying like that concept, because you can't make a community, Sheikh, you're right. You can't make a community without brotherhood. But the real brotherhood, it's got to be, it's, it's not transactional, Sheikh. That's the problem. We live in a society that's transactional. You invited me for dinner. Okay, now I'll invite you for dinner. You gave this gift to my child. Okay, now I'll give a gift to your child. You know what I mean? How many, what did you, do, what can I get from this relation, like a transactional relationship? Yeah. But true brotherhood isn't transactional, Sheikh. Let me um, see if I can comment on a couple of things. Uh, you know, um, there's some gifts that each one of us can give to each other. Yes. Um, um, when we come together, you have a background, and, and there are some beautiful gifts from your culture that if I take the time, uh, I'm going to be able to, to gain. You know, um, uh, uh, my wife, uh, who happens to be a Somali, uh, mm. she says to me one day, uh, she was trying to give me a message, right? Uh, and so she said it in a different way a couple of times, but I wasn't listening well, because, you know, sometimes a woman, she doesn't really know, you know, she, she's an immigrant. She just got here. So what does she know about all my things that I'm encountering and my background and all of that there? You know what I'm saying? So I'm not kind of like really listening. Yeah. So then she, she says it to me in a Bedouin way. So listen to what she told me. Mm. She told me, Sheikh, she was trying to tell me that Sheikh, you have to be independent. If you want people to respect you, mm. you have to be independent. Mm. You have to be reasonably independent. But she's not an intellectual. She's mm. a Bedouin. She, you know what I mean? I'm saying she would not mind me calling her a Bedouin because it just means what it meant at that time that she was born in the village. They have very pristine uh, principles about family and community and all of that. Mm. They have strong connections to their family. They have mm. strong connections to their culture. And they're kind of like simple people, right? We, we say not educated, but simple, but very profound. So look mm. what she says to me. 
she says to me, Sheikh, you know, um, if you really want to have good influence among the people, uh, she was talking about, we were living in San Diego at the time. So she mm -hmm. says to me, uh, Sheikh, um, we have a saying in Somalia that if you have your own breakfast, anyone will invite you to lunch. Mm. I said, wow. I thought about what she said and the implications of what she said. And I mean, somebody that had a PhD, they couldn't have said it any better. Mm. That socially, you know, socially, you need to cook the rice. You know, if you, she was telling me, if you cook the rice, anybody can give you vegetables and so on and so on. But if you don't cook the rice, ain't nobody going to invite you to lunch. If you don't have your own breakfast, no one is going to invite you to lunch. If you don't have the basic ingredients mm. of stability, nobility, independence, people mm. will not really see you to be uh, a distinguished person. They're just not going to do it. This mm. is human. She, of course, she's just talking about human people. But she said it in her own way. So, mm. um, you know, having said that, um, I, we can learn something from each other. And that is that if we spend a weekend together, you will be surprised. Just a weekend, like a retreat. Mm. Mm. I, you invite me to a retreat. It may start after Juma. And so we mm. spend Friday night together. We spend Saturday mm. night together. And we go back to our homes on Sunday. Mm. Those people that you spend that retreat with, mm. they become a, a unique group of people in that area for you. You know why? Because they were Africans. They were Asians. They were Arabs. They were African-Americans, uh, mm. people from uh, different parts of Asia, and maybe the group was like 50 people, you know, 20 women and 30 brothers, and the sisters was on that side, and the brothers was on another side, and mm. we went out, we did some camping, and, you know, mm. we w walked the trails, and we ate dinner together in a big dining hall or whatever it was, and we spent mm. that retreat together. You will never forget that experience. Why? Or you will mm. never forget those people. Why? Because in that time, you went to you got up together, you went mm. to sleep together, you ate breakfast together, you ate dinner together, you mm. walked, you talked, you talked about their family, their experiences, their childhood, mm. their their cultural principles, and you talked about issues that were contemporary and how, mm. if you could, how we would, how not I would, how we could solve this situation. Mm. Now I can tell you that. Um, over the last 20 years, I have attended at least 15 or 20 retreats mm. like that. Mm. Those people I attended those retreats with tend to become the most prominent people in my, in my mind. Mm. So, um, so why? Because we were able to demonstrate a microcosm, you know, a macro, you know, I mean, mm. a micro. We were able to, to, to experience a micro of brotherhood. We lived in that retreat for a moment, community. And we lived it for a little bit until Sunday afternoon. And the next time we saw each other on Monday or uh, in the week sometime, we looked at each other and we said, wow, we just wish we could go back to that. Okay, so I am you're You're literally just describing um, this leadership camp uh, that we came back from. We've been doing it for, this is the 15th year that we did it. And we go for a week. So you're literally just uh, describing so Subhanallah. You know, so when, great minds, Alhamdulillah, we think alike, Alhamdulillah. <laughs> uh, you know, when I spoke to your colleague and in our early discussions, and I hope he doesn't mind me saying this, 
you know, in our early discussions when he said to me, oh, Sheikh, you know, we have this here podcast that we do and we would really like you to, you know, I, I was kind of try, trying to be soft. I was soft gloving him. We call it that, soft gloving. Yeah. That means that I, I was not really, because I didn't know him that well. And, mm. you know, I'm trying to be respectful and diplomatic and all of that. But I'm, fi- I'm feeling him out. And I'm seeing whether or not I could be honest with this guy, whether to be diplomatic, patronizing, whatever. And I'm trying to cut through the chase, you know. Uh, and I tried him on a couple of issues. And he, 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 he came across good. He, he backed up and he came back. And he understood what I was saying, even though he's a, you know, he's a doctor. You know what I mean? Like, you know, meaning that you wouldn't think of a doctor, a medical doctor. He can actually sometimes maybe they're very easy to injure. You know, us guys from the ghetto, sometimes we talk to doctors and guys with PhD, you know, we hit them in the gut and they don't come back again, you know, because they're not just accustomed to that. Right. So anyway, I said to him, uh, uh, listen, brother, I want to be very honest with you. Uh, I appreciate the invitation, but if there's not really something substantial that we're going to accomplish, I'm going to pass on this. That's what I told him in so many words. I want to know what is the maqasid of this? What do you want to get out of it? You just want to get a podcast. You want to talk, go to the back. I did hundreds of those and nothing came from it except Mm. a pat on the back. Okay. A lunch, go out to lunch. Okay. Mm. And maybe a promise to let's do it again. Nothing has come, and I'm not willing to go through that over and over because it's a waste of time. And I don't need to be popular, and I don't need to. I don't need to come into an environment of talking where we're going to patronize each other, and we're not going to talk about any real issues. And secondly, there's not going to be any aim, no objective at the end. Well, uh, to be honest with you, in that first discussion that we had, he assured me, uh, "No, Sheikh, I think that." Um, if you take a, if you take the time to talk with us a little bit more, and you also talk with Dr. Sayed, you're going to find that there is some depth <laughs> to what we are about, and there is some, you know, there is some thinking, uh, and there is a maqasid involved. He didn't mm-hmm. say maqasid, but objective. Okay, mm-hmm. okay. Then it led up to, I mean, he and I had a very substantial one hour and a half conversation before you and I spoke. After you and I spoke, he and I had another one and a half, two hour conversation. And so in those conversations, I was able to roll up my sleeves. I was able to talk a little bit more, you know, and he was able to respond. And I was able to say to myself, "Okay, I think we got something here. He talked about the leadership camp. He talked about some of the conversations that you guys have had. And so it made me feel a lot more motivated uh, to this. And another thing is, your program wasn't set up for 45 minutes or an hour. I said, whoa, okay, so he really wants to have a, a really an open conversation. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't mind, you know, because in your conversation and my conversation, I tried to be respectful of your background and all of that there. But I dropped a couple of things in that conversation to kind of see whether or not how you would handle it. You handled it very well. Uh, I don't mean as an intellectual, but you handled it very well in terms of some of what I consider to be my protocols, some of my concerns uh, that myself and my colleagues, we've decided, okay, the check before you go there 
or some other place. Let's set up some protocol so we really get something out of this. Well, you answered and responded to that very well. So I just want to say that uh, I, I think that there, I determined that there was a like-mindedness before today. Mm. And the other thing is what I determined is that maybe even you guys have taken it to a, another level that the Purpose of Life Foundation, okay, my formal organization, the Purpose of Life Foundation, that even though we've maybe done some international global work, some NGO work, and maybe as a personality, you know, maybe I got some leverage or mileage that you guys don't have. But on another level, you guys have done the work. You have begun to initiate the kind of a apparatus that I personally, and after talking to my colleagues, um, that I said to myself, you know, I think that these guys, they're in Canada, uh, and, you know, they're, they're a little bit on the, what's called, they're kind of like, they're kind of like uh, on the intellectual side of things, you know, high tech side of things. I'm mm. telling you some of the conversations I had with some of my people, but mm. I kind of think I can handle it. Mm. And I think I can kind of like uh, uh, work with them so that maybe through this discussion that they can grill me in mm. front of their audience. And at the same, same token, I can also reciprocate. Mm. I can kind of like grill them too. So mm. we can put the heat to each other's burger and we mm. come out of it, you understand know, me, with what we want at mm. the final end, a meal to bite mm. down on. And so this is what I'm finding. And I want to say to your audience that, um, that this was not rehearsed. Yes, no, this was definitely not rehearsed. <laughs> okay. And even, even to be honest with you, um, when one of your technical people sent me a, yeah. a full page of technical protocols, <laughs> to be honest with you, I didn't like it. I'm a guy that shoots straight from the hip, even though uh, I'm not I'm not informal. Uh, I I I research, I prepare, I write things out. Um, I have a script. That's the way I. A lot of people don't know that, but I I am very scripted. When I give a chutzpah, I'm very scripted. Um, um, sometimes even in the chutzpah, people say, "Check why you keep looking down at the paper. Check just let it flow." Well, I don't. Because I know that when you let things flow um, spontaneous, there's going to be some regrets later on. Because even the best speakers and the best intellectuals in the world, they have learned to put a script there or speech writers have put it there for them so they have less regrets. Okay. Yes. So when, when your technician gave me that mm -hmm. uh, and I said, hey, guys, look, I appreciate all the technical uh, protocols that you got set up. Uh, but I'm not really like a technical guy. I'm not, I got high tech stuff around me, but yeah. you know, you can see when we set up, I didn't know a lot of things. That's how I learned, uh, impromptu. I said that, you know, I'm not really comfortable with a lot of that. Guys, look, you want earphones? I got them. You want me to have my iPhone? I got an iPhone, I got a Samsung, I got that. I got a slow uh, Hewlett Packard, Packard uh, 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 um, a PC, um, a, a personal computer, a laptop that probably is not going to do the job for us. But that's what I've got. I've got a tripod. If that's not technical enough for you guys, I don't know what you want to do because I'm not just there. 
So yeah. I was talking like that. And so, and your technician also was very nice. Uh, they said, Sheikh, don't, don't worry. We'll work with whatever you've got. And, uh, you know, we'll just weed it in. And that's what you've done. Uh, and, and I have to apologize to your audience. I had to dash out to get my cord. You know what I'm saying? I had yeah. to kind of like make some other adjustments and all of that because my phone was going off. You had mm. to tell me with your phone, hey, Sheikh, there's a little moon thing on your thing. <laughs> That means do not disturb. That means I haven't used it before. So I appreciate that you guys were patient and tolerant with me. You know, I'm like a high tech OG, you know, that doesn't really know how to use all the stuff that's around him. Yeah. Uh, so you guys were patient with that. At the same token, I'm kind of like, um, how can you say it? I'm a hard writer. What R I D E R? Yes, sir. You know, you know they got low riders. And they yeah. got hard riders. That means that yeah. I, the kids in the street call it rocking hard. So mm. for me, excuse my terminology, but the kids in the street, they know what it means when you rocking it hard. Mm. That means that sometimes as a OG, an older generation guy, mm. I'm rocking it quite different. And mm. I might make you uncomfortable sometimes because mm. I can. Chef, you, you will make us uncomfortable, Chef. You're. You know, like like I said, uh, we've dealt with so many different uh, people, and, and I don't I, like. We have no problem with that because one of the things that we train on from the beginning is to have that akhlaq, that adab, to be able to be patient, to deal. That's 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 I think fundamental um, uh, training that everyone should receive. Unfortunately, we're kind of disconnected with it uh, nowadays. So you that, that hasn't been uh, you know any trouble at all, and I don't mind that. To tell you the truth, Sheikh, that's understandable. You know what I don't understand, Sheikh? You know what I don't understand? Because I've been in the game, and unfortunately, when you have people who are speaking, representing, teaching, and they're inauthentic, they say something, and they're it doesn't mean you you're exactly the same because everyone makes mistakes. But you say something and you're fundamentally different in your in your personal life or you're fundamentally different behind the microphone, you know, behind the mm. stage. And that to me, I can't stand that. And we, we refuse to work with people who are like that. It doesn't matter how popular they are. My goal is just to seek real people, you know, people who keep it 100, people who are authentic, you know, people um, because you can benefit a lot. Maybe somebody who has a rising star. But if I'm like, that's just a mirage. We don't, we don't, we don't attach ourselves to that. You yeah, know what by, I mean? And by the way, by the way, Doctor Sayed. Yeah. Uh, in the street, the terminology, keeping it 100. Yeah. If you say that to the people in the street, you got to keep it 100. They say that guy's corny. Yeah. You know, because you know, they don't say they don't keep it 100. They say you got to keep it 100. Yeah, I know. I know that. I didn't want to. I don't want to <laughs> pronounce it, mispronounce it on purpose to look like I'm trying too hard. You know what I mean? No, so, no, no, no. Okay, yeah, okay, yeah, okay, good. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, I just want. I just want to bring yeah. it in. Yeah, this is why keep I it hunted. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Keep it hunted. So yeah. you know, doctor, this is the beauty. Yeah. This is the beauty of brotherhood. Yeah. It's the beauty of Islam, that I will take from you your classic, educational, academic, training. And other things that you got from your culture, from your mother and father, I will get that when we are together. That refinement that I don't have from the ghetto. At the same token, there are some traits that people in the ghetto have 
of being able to express themselves that yeah. classical people just don't have it. For yeah. instance, you know Mr. Obama, he's really a nerd. Obama is a nerd. Yeah. You know the word nerd? Yeah. Okay, it means yeah. a square. Yeah. He's not slick, he's not round, he's not hip, he's yeah. not you know down with the game, but yeah. he developed that demeanor and that yeah. swagger yeah. Because it went with the people he, he wanted to put him into office and yeah. it also fit with the with the flavor that his party wanted him to have to 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 come in to, to complement his presidency, yeah. his representation of African Americans, although to be very honest, Mr. Obama did less for African Americans than than um then, then uh, uh, what was what was the, his predecessor? A Bush. Got, Bush. Not not Bush before Clinton. Bush. Clinton. Clinton, Clinton yeah. did more for African Americans than Obama. Mm. Okay, but Obama had the swagger. Yeah. Him and his wife could dance, and he could play basketball, and yeah. he he could say a hundred, yo yeah. yo, how you feeling, my man? You yeah. know he was he was nice with Jay Z and yeah. all of that. You know so. Yeah. The point is that the beauty of it is that we African-Americans, yeah. we have a way of cutting to the chase and we have a way of communicating that the world has adopted, you know, mm. even the cap that you're wearing, mm. you know, and even when I saw you the first time you were doing another talk and you had the X. Yeah. I, myself, I said, wait a minute, what's he, what's he trying to do? Yeah. You know, and OK, and today you've got that look. And, and it's, I like that. I mean, uh, it's purposeful. Sheikh, you don't know my, how I grew up, so that's another no, no, thing we'll talk no, no, about. No, 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 Inshallah. No, I'm, not, I'm not saying that. No, no, I'm not saying you're patronizing us. Yeah. I'm saying that you yeah. have it genuinely. It's not that you're just putting it on because of yeah. your program. Yeah. No, yeah. you are from that generation. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. You grew up with that mixture that you feel comfortable to wear that cap. You feel comfortable to put the X on and you feeling it genuinely. Okay. Why? Because it came organically as you were growing up. And yeah. I can also do the same thing. I can talk Harvard. Mm. I can talk Oxford. Mm. Or I can talk Harlem mm. in a heartbeat. And this comes because I have associated, I have assimilated with people of that background. And they have allowed me to live with them and talk with them and interact with them so that it's become almost second nature. I can flip a switch and know when to be corporate. Mm. I can flip a switch and know when to be urban. And so this is what Islam demands of us if we really want to become globally effective. And I think that this is sort of what you were hinting on uh, in your previous uh, discussion. Mm. And I'm praying to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that the platform that you have, um, the platform that the Purpose of Life uh, a Foundation has established, um, that we can, we can marry, you know, we can kind of melt this, uh, these experiences. And it just so happened that we were in North America. So, yes. I mean, like, I'm not saying that this doesn't exist in Europe, yeah. but the, this, this particular um, flavor, or mm -hmm. this particular uh, um, uh, symmetry 
that mm. we that we have in our dialogue right today and the platform that you have and the experience that I have, mm. this is North American, mm. more so than it is European. Mm. And this is indicative of the fact that to me, that the spirit of the dean, mm. not the historical essence of the dean, <clears throat> but the spirit of the dean, which is moving all the time. Mm. When people say Islamic, it doesn't mean out of Asian African, it doesn't even mean the past. Mm. Being Islamic is a dynamic that mm. is that that can be housed like gas, mm. that can mm. be housed like energy, that can be housed like social media. So, so when you say Islamic, it's an energy mm. that is present in every time and every place and of every circumstance, but it has to be packaged. Mm. It has to be housed so that it can be delivered. Mm. And, uh, and I'm thinking to myself, sometimes to be honest with you, um, doctor, and I'm talking to your audience also, you know, there are times when I'm kind of thinking to myself, am, am I kind of like an anomaly? Mm. You know, am, am I really like an odd guy? Mm. You know, am I kind of like really thinking about things like I'm kind of like far out? You know, yeah. am I kind of like in a bubble by myself? Yeah. You know, like sometimes I'm thinking that when I write something and I say something, it's like, and I put it on social media, people are saying, wow, Sheikh, where did that come from? Mm. You know, what are you, what are you talking about? You're a da'i. Mm. Why are you mm. talking about these issues? Mm. For the past five years, mm. I have had to defend my thinking as a social activist. Mm. Because I've always been a social activist, mm. but in the last five to seven years, I have become a pronounced social activist. Uh, I've had to say to people, wait a minute, brother, don't classify me as a da'i mm. in the traditional sense. Because when you say da'i in the traditional sense, it means that you are not a social activist. It means that you're not a businessman. It means that you're not politically acute. Uh, adept. It means that you're not a person of the world. You're just mm. like in a bubble. You can talk from the khutbah. You can talk hadith and Quran. You can talk about Islam and you can invite people and you can argue with Christians or Jews or whatever it is. And that's what you do. And that's what people feel comfortable. So mm. about seven years ago, when I started to become a pronounced social activist mm. uh, and start talking, you know, selectively, about brotherhood, community, and social responsibility or activism. So I had to address issues like racism. Mm. I had to address issues like selfishness. Mm. You know, uh, I had to address people, things that being being uh, being socially dysfunctional. I had to start looking at Muslims and myself and how Muslims organize them, and people started getting uncomfortable with the, the new Sheikh Khalid Yassin. Even they, they would even say, oh, this is not the real Sheikh Khalid Yassin. I'm on my, my Facebook page. Can you believe that? I'm posting on my personal page, mm. not my fan page. And mm. people refused to accept me. No, no, no. You're a fake guy. You're not the real Sheikh Khalid Yassin. You are an imposter because the real Sheikh Khalid Yassin wouldn't be talking like this. Is what they said. Mm. So they told me, hey. If you're the real Sheikh Khalid Yassin, why you don't have a blue check? Why your thing is not, I don't know what they call it in social media when you've been Facebook. Oh, ver yeah, verified or something, yeah. Why you not verified? Why you don't do this? Why you don't do that? And I would tell them, 
look, that's social media uh, uh, certification. I don't need it. Maybe I do need it. But for right now, I don't need it for you. This is me talking. And if you don't accept me and you don't identify me, guess what? Go to another page because, you know, uh, as a shepherd, my sheep know my voice. That's, you know, it goes like that sometimes. If you are a viewer of mine, if you are a brother or sister of mine, and you're in my audience or you, my global audience or whatever you want to call it, you would know me and you wouldn't have to have me qualify myself because I'm making some statements that you are uncomfortable with. This is what has happened. So Dr. Sayed, on behalf of the Purpose Life Foundation, on behalf of the, uh, the, uh, the Purpose Media Group, which is the group that we use for social media, for television, um, and you know, for our global, uh, uh, if you want to call it Islamic presentation, because um, we have changed our terminology of da'wah into Islamic presentation. Mm. I went to, do, I went to uh, Oman about seven years ago. I was invited by uh, his, his Excellency, uh, the Sultan Qaboos, uh, uh, I was invited by him uh, to come there to do uh, a one-week or a, a 10-day da'wah mm. training program. Mm. But his, his, um, his, uh, his, his office, they requested of me, uh, Sheikh, uh, we, you were hand-selected uh, from a group of about 15 people, and His Excellency uh, asked us to request from you just one thing. Can you change your training um, from da'wah training? Can you change it to something else which is not so provocative? Mm. And, and I said, what do you mean provocative? <laughs> da'wah, this, this, is, this is classical. This is the Qur'an. They said, mm. yes, Sheikh, but it's been, it's been marketed by some other Muslims. Uh, so the word da'wah has become provocative from a marketing point of view. We don't want that marketing. We don't want that provocation as it is seen in the contemporary world today. So can you kind of change that term, that, that term, whatever? I told him, certainly, how about this? Uh, how about we change it to Islamic presentation? And when we give the certificates out to the, uh, uh, the people, who, to the attendees, we call them Islamic presenters and not du'at. They said, oh, wow, that's great. That's, wow, Shep, that is, it was just a translation. But can you see how much of a difference just that translation made? And guess what, Dr. Sayed, I wanted to tell you this. I have never been treated as a da'i. The way I was treated as an Islamic presenter. When I went as an Islamic presenter, and gave this presentation for 10 days in Oman, I was treated on a corporate level that as an African-American, I have never been treated like that before. I was embarrassed. Mm. Can you believe I was put in a five-star plus hotel? Mm. My driver, my car was a Jaguar, a midnight blue Jaguar with white glove leather inside. <laughs> I had two drivers for 12 hours each that sat in front of my hotel to do whatever I wanted them to do. I was put in a corporate suite where I didn't have to go downstairs and even order food. I was given a 
a management secretary to send facts, to answer my phone, to, to uh, receive my guests, or to do whatever I wanted. I had my own sauna, my own steam room, my own, it was crazy. I was like embarrassed, you know, like I didn't even know why they did that, you know? So guess what? It was because they wanted to treat me as an executive. They wanted to give me diplomatic treatment. I never got it before. I'm not trying to put in a plug for Oman. I'm only trying to say that uh, what I realize now is that you get what you call yourself. So if you want to call yourself a da'i, most of the Muslim world expect for you to travel um, for free, to talk for free, not to get a check at the end, and to go to dinner and be satisfied to be taking pictures as a celebrity and to go home with just some minimal, uh, what do you call it, uh, what do you call it, uh, um, amenity, so to speak, right? And unfortunately, this is what da'i means in the, most, in the greater part of the Muslim world. Mm. So um, I really appreciate the fact that your group um, um, reached out to me as a, as a corporate executive, you respected me. And yeah. you're, well, you're, you know, you, you know, Sheikh, you may be taking it as a corporate executive, but to tell you the truth, our, our, our perspective is we reached out to you like from completely our mannerisms, the way we interact is hundred percent traditional, like in terms of like, it, it may come across from that, but I think implanted within our Dean, there's this concept of Ahsan. Like, you don't want to relegate yourself to minimal standards or status quo. My philosophy is this. We should treat uh, our shayukh, uh, our respected scholars, each other with the best level possible. We should tr endeavor to do that, but we should have the training to be as rough and tough as it needs to be. You know what I mean? So we should be able to, like, because I've been, uh, you know, Sheikh. What you're going through, I, I've seen the whole gamut. I've seen people who are like celebrity speakers. They want everything like they're like almost like you have to pamper them. You know, everything has to be like this. If you don't have the right cereal, it, they will literally have a hissy fit. This is this is the type of grown men with big beards. Shit, I'm not joking. You don't have that guy's right cereal. He will have a hissy fit. It's crazy. So I have we have interacted with with these types of uh, people. And uh, I've been myself on the receiving end, Sheikh. They put me in a motel, which I thought somebody had recently been murdered in that motel. They brought me as a speaker. I came. To, I said, listen, brother, I, I actually called another because I was so embarrassed to tell the brother. I called another brother to say, can you just gently tell him that I cannot stay in this place? I will pay for myself to stay somewhere else. So they felt embarrassed and whatever. They put me somewhere else uh, decent. So I've experienced and I've been part of uh, the, the gamut. I say as part of uh, Muslims who are endeavoring for Ahsan, it is already built within our deen to uh, to do the best. But as like the NBA did, I'm here not to have any financial gain for me. I'm here to uh, do this for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The mission, if, 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 if Islam is a mission, uh, it doesn't matter if I'm paid, if I'm not paid, if, uh, if I have any challenges, I'm going to fulfill my mission. But... At the same time, that's my mission, but we need to understand that 
again, Ahsan, love, respecting. And so if we need to elevate, like if I have the budget to call somebody in first class, why not? Why not? Why shouldn't we do that? But at the same time, if I have to travel by a camel to get to where I got to go, okay, it's my mission. I'm going to get there. You know what I mean? So that's the duality that uh, we, we try to you know uh, do is do the best as we can and do the best amount of respect uh, and, and not take advantage because I've seen, unfortunately, very good people taking advantage of. We weren't grateful to them uh, because, again, true ikhwa and, and true gratitude is, uh, is not just lip service. You know what I mean? If, if I'm grateful for somebody, it's like, you know, shukr, they equate it to iman, right? And kufr, ingratitude is equated to each other, right? So shukr, if shukr is like equated to iman, being grateful, say if I'm grateful for you, then iman is a statement on my tongue. Iman is state, is a condition of my heart and what I do on, with my limbs, right? So if I'm grateful for, say, uh, if I have somebody who I'm grateful for and we shouldn't be more great. I think somebody who gets us closer to the deen that is the person you need to be the most grateful to because that is the best benefit. There's no other person who can give you a benefit than a person who brings you closer to the deen of Allah SWT. So if, if I'm grateful for that person, then I need to, I can't just be lip service. I need to really love them in my heart. And at the same time, what can I do for you? You know what I mean? What can I do? Because shukr, again, iman is, you can't say a person is iman and they don't show any iman in the actions of their limbs. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? So, I think like, you know, our approach, like, uh, like I said, is that whatever we can do in ever any manner that we can, we just want to find good, authentic people. And it's like that if, if you're able to find that and you can bring those um, th- those core principles back in terms of how we deal with each other, in terms of our objective, in terms of our mission, you get enough of those people, as you mentioned, Sheikh, there's going to be immense change will cause that is just now that is the hardest fixture to put in once you put in that fixture the lights will go on addressing real issues with real solutions with real muslim communities living in the west join the lifehug podcast family as we go beyond the theoretical to connect with us go to youtube.com slash dr sayed and support us by subscribing and hitting the notification bell for more reminders, follow us on Twitter at life underscore huck. Do I feel that the New York police are providing enough protection or do I have to have protection of my own? I look for protection from Allah.